Join over 350,000 people just like you who are taking control of their wellness journey with Viome. When it comes to choosing the right food and supplements for you, don't guess, test. With Viome's health intelligence test, you get over 30 health insights based on your unique biology and your gut microbiome. You also receive personalized food recommendations and precision supplements formulated literally just for you. Use code GENIUS to get an extra $20 off a health intelligence test. Visit Viome.com to shop now. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Glenn R. Sheraldi, PhD. Uh, he's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves, retired. He's now at the University of Maryland School of Public Health, also retired but presently adjunct. And uh, he runs what's called Resilience Training International. The website is resiliencefirst.com. He's also the author of the Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook. So we're going to talk about his work. Glenn, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Nice to be with you. Yeah, tell me a bit about uh, why would you work with uh, adverse child experiences? Like, Unfortunately, I hope you don't have some of your own, but uh, tell me a bit about your background, if you would. Sure. Well, it's been kind of a... A long process. Um, I started out in the field of public health back in 1980. Actually, I go back a little earlier than that. I was a West Point graduate, and I was an officer during the Vietnam era, and that was kind of a tough time to be a soldier. And I saw a lot of my friends coming back from uh, the war with PTSD, and I had no idea how to help. Then I taught three years in the public schools, and I saw young people struggling with depression and drugs and sexual abuse and rape and suicide. And again, I had no idea really how to help. And I was a health uh, educator. And uh, and then I I stumbled on the University of Maryland, which had a great doctoral program in stress management. I thought that'd be a great thing to do. So I started uh, exploring all things related to stress and trauma and resilience, um, including PTSD. And uh, I taught the Pentagon during that time, and I started working with soldiers and military and and firefighters and cops, very high-risk groups, um, trying to prevent 
PTSD. And what I then called resilience training, I think I was the first person to uh, use that word, implying that there are skills that we can teach to prevent this stuff. Then 1998 started this research on adverse childhood experiences. Up until recently, we keep looking at recent traumas like rape and combat, uh, only to learn that what happened in the childhood years from really the last trimester of pregnancy to year 18, there are many uh, imprinted remnants of trauma that really can cause suffering throughout uh, the entirety of of adulthood, if not resolved. And so this book was sort of a a culmination, a natural culmination of the other books I've written on PTSD and resilience and trauma and and all things stress-related. And uh, it's just nice to know that uh, we've got some great tools that uh, can be taught either by a professional or often in the classroom or the home. What are some of the traumas you've seen that, you know, young people experience that stay with them and cause them problems worse than others? Like what are some of the the top ones that affect them? The original research looked at 10 and there are many more, but, but just the 10 that were originally found to be predictive of, you name the medical or psychological disease, whether it's depression or anxiety or PTSD or autoimmune disorders, or diabetes, heart disease. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. But the original 10 childhood traumas that predict in a linear fashion disorders in adulthood are uh, any kind of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, neglect, like physical and emotional, then Seeing domestic violence in the home or having a parent who is gone, typically by divorce or separation, living in a home where there's uh, drug abuse or suicidality or mental illness or someone who's incarcerated. The more of these that have occurred, the more likely people are to have to the tune of two to five times more often a host of psychological really just about any disease I can think of, psychological or medical, are predicted by these early childhood experiences. And if you only look at adult health and say, well, let's talk about, you know, their present thinking habits or your recent traumas, then often these unresolved childhood wounds really continue to to run our show and and drive our adult uh, health and well-being. What about um, someone that grows up in a home where a parent is you know, majorly depressed or has PTSD? Or, you know, does that tend to carry forward through the generations where the person yeah, often, often abuse not, the next person? Not always, but yeah, that for several reasons. One, we we learn how to be depressed by watching, and and there's this thing called epigenomes that are kind of interesting. That that uh, you know, genes are inherited. You can't do anything about that, but but only about 5% of diseases are solely determined by genes. Next to the DNA strands are these things called epigenomes, and they are uh, susceptible to, say, stress in the parents or uh, environmental toxins and all sorts of things. Um, So yeah, the mental health of parents often is transmitted in various ways to the child. And even in the last trimester of of, uh, pregnancy, you know, kids here and they they get uh, the mother's circulation. If there's cortisol in the in the bloodstream, that gets parted to the kid. So there's lots of things that happen often in the earliest years of childhood before we even remember stuff. You know, like say a two month old child doesn't understand words, doesn't understand logic because the left brain is not yet 
sufficiently developed to, to consciously recall these memories. But the right brain is online during the first three years of, of life. And so maybe it's just a disgusted look or an angry tone of voice that the kid experiences. And, and that can cause the brain to wire such that the brain is wired to be on high alert, shame and self-esteem issues, all sorts of things happen. And of course, we don't remember this because we don't consciously recall most of the time memories from the first three years of life, but but the imprints are are often there. And I don't want to overstate the problem because some people seem to sail through these kind of things pretty well, but but it is amazing that about two-thirds of adults have experienced at least one of those 10 adverse childhood experiences. And as I said, there's lots of others. For example, you may lose a parent because of deployment or being killed in in battle, or maybe there's surgery in the early years to the mother, and that made the mother unavailable and, and unable to attach and bond with the child. So there's lots of interesting things that can happen in the early years, and most people aren't aware of this. Example I often use is, you know, you've all probably known people that are accomplished, nice personality, attractive, and yet they self-loathe and they, you know, that may manifest by cutting or just feeling low in self-esteem. And you try to reason people out of that. Well, look here, you're athletic, you're smart, you're successful in business. And that doesn't usually penetrate because those old imprints are not in the conscious verbal left brain, but the subconscious right brain as images and visceral responses and, and emotions. So it's very interesting what uh, what we're learning about uh, what causes people to suffer and how to, how to fix it. What about the how to fix it part? What are, some, what are some unique things that you've learned? I spent a lot of years trying to get my arms around the disease part of the spectrum, you know, and the, and the left part of the spectrum might be trauma and stress-related diseases. And on the right is resilience and optimal functioning and happiness and those kind of things. So a lot of things that are used to treat trauma uh, help to heal, except that we're now learning that a lot of the ways we're training our young people in graduate school are not necessarily the, the effective starting point. Like we learn in Western education and Western psychology programs, well, if someone's in pain, you say, well, talk to me about it. Tell me about it. What are you feeling? And the only problem is that's a left brain approach when trauma usually lodges in the right brain. And so instead of starting with talk therapy, cognitive therapy and the like, it's often best to start with what's been recently developed by Ogden and Vanderkoek and, and uh, people like that, that start with the body. And I'll give you a good example. Um, let's say a teenager has been raped and in therapy, the therapist noticed that well, when you talk about it, I notice that you start tensing up and your face kind of turns white. How about we put the storytelling aside for the moment? That's the left brain function. Let us do a body-based uh, strategy. So, for example, can you imagine, can you just stand up and from a very strong uh, base, just imagine yourself pushing that perpetrator away very slowly so the right brain can register what you're doing? And often working at the body first in a bottom-up fashion, you start to control, uh, you start to regulate the uh, survival brain, the emotional brain. And if you track what's going on as you do that, 
you also start to integrate all parts of the brain so that the left brain comes online again. And then you, you might be able to talk about it, tell a story, put the, the experience to words, which is kind of an integrative healing step. But trying to tell a story at first may be premature. And so you try to calm the body and the lower brain levels first. And there's lots of creative ways that's been developed to do that. But, but to me, that was the missing piece of the trauma puzzle, these body-based uh, uh, strategies when, especially when the cognitive strategies don't uh, work, they're not very effective at first. And not to say they won't be, because there's typically distortions lodged in trauma memories, but difficult to access when you're overstressed. So what are some of the body-based therapies? You know, like, is that why maybe exercise makes people feel better for a while? Does it jar things loose? Or well, you know, I've heard about like EMDR, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So the body-based, um, some some of them are real simple. I, I mentioned one is just movement. Like instead of talking about it, just get up and and complete the uh, movement that might have been frozen. Like a rapist is held down, you, you're you're just unable to express the energy of stress. So just have somebody finish that boarded movement. You know, like like just imagine pushing that perpetrator away from the strength of your core one i really like because it's really really simple is called kneading k-n-e-a-d i-n-g where again you say okay let's put the story aside and and let's just calm the body can you imagine putting one hand over your wrist and actually do this not just imagine it but experiment with different ways of squeezing your wrists mechanical uh, kind soft or slow or deep or shallow, but just until you find a way that feels good, squeeze and just track what that feels like. Because what we know from brain, uh, brain scans, when we track what the body is doing, that's when you bring back online the left brain and the parts of the brain that make you feel connected to yourself that often is dissociated in, in PTSD. And then you release and then move your hand up another inch, press, squeeze, track, and release and, and keep going up and down your arm and then just stop and, and notice uh, as you pay attention to your left arm, how's it different from your right? Are there any subtle shifts in your body and your emotions? But that that's another example of a body uh, up. There's grounding exercises where you simply uh, put your hand on your back and just notice uh, how the, the ribs expand when you breathe put another hand on the heart and just notice what happens when you do that. And then put your hand anywhere in the body that may feel distressed. And it's kind of calming just by, by touch. There's, there's one line of thought now that says that a soothing touch, you know, like you do when a baby is upset and you simply stroke their, their bellies, that that creates um, delta waves and calms the amygdala in the brain. And, and all of this is the goal is to bring arousal either that is hyper aroused back into a, you know, a resilient window, not too high, not too low. Or if you're frozen and collapsed, you get people moving to get your arousal up into that resilient zone, where you're then able to make sense of what is an overwhelming event that makes no sense at all, really. Discover how your gut microbiome is impacting your cellular health, immune health, and how you're aging from the inside out with Viome's Health Intelligence Test. 
Collect your samples, send them to the Viome Lab, and within two to three weeks, your health scores and food and supplement recommendations will be available to you right in your Viome app. Visit Viome.com and use code GENIUS to get an extra $20 off your health intelligence test. You know, when someone's traumatized, sometimes they don't want anyone touching them from what right. I've heard from, you know, some people. Right. Um, in which case, if they when you were talking up, about this, I was thinking about like a massage, you know, like, <laughs> is there any type of therapy that people could tolerate? But they yeah. would literally be getting a massage and then they, maybe they would, I don't know if it would mess it up, but right. if the that's massage right. is going well and they feel nice, but they're talking about things that are un- unpleasant, that's does right. that work to fix things? Well, a lot of people like massage for another person it might be a trigger. You know, maybe I was inappropriately touched and now it triggers me. And so they can try either doing these things to themselves, which might be safe. And if it's not, then you, then you try something else. The, the beauty of, you know, what we've learned in the last 40 years, there's lots of different strategies. If one doesn't work, you know, it's very likely that, that others, others will, you know, maybe okay. a body-based, I'll give you a good example where a body-based strategy might not work. You know, one of the old traditional ones is, um, is breathing exercises and you know, usually for most people, you start out with a couple of easy breaths and then you do something else to bring your arousal in the window of comfort. But I was working with some police in Georgia recently and, and one said, you know, I every time we started with that breathing, I, I noticed I was getting unaccountably stressed. And that night when I went home, I realized as a three-year-old, I nearly drowned and I couldn't breathe. And so now focusing on the breath becomes a trigger. And then you got some options with without awareness. Either I can try something else or settle that memory. And she was able to settle that memory with some of the other skills we do to process a memory that's kind of stuck in memory and, and triggered. But if you know, if you don't want to use your body, then you can use the room to to simply uh, ground. You know, look around and tell me something that's blue and describe it in detail or pick up something and feel it and describe to me what, what you're feeling. Lots and lots of different ways to, to help someone uh, process and, and settle those old memories. So that's good. I mean, is, is physically getting, getting them out through the body? I don't know how often is that really the only answer or the way that works for people versus talk therapy, let's say. Right. Yeah. So it's not re- really either or. It's just kind of the sequence you know, sometimes people are just not ready for one reason or another to start with talking. So maybe you, you just, you know, if they're comfortable, a lot of people are more comfortable saying, you know, I'll tell you what my body is doing, but please don't expect me to tell you what my emotions are and my thoughts are. But at some point, you can then try once people learn how to regulate their arousal, regulate their emotions, you know, may, may then be able to do the cognitive approaches and i think storytelling is very very powerful it brings closure often it's just a question of are people ready initially to start with talk therapy maybe that's you know down the road a little while i don't know what are some of the new innovations that you found in your work i mean you're talking about again using i don't know if they call it somatic therapy or just body-based therapy but is the nuance or the improvement in the combination of these two or there's still other things that you found that would help yeah, oh golly, there's so many things. You know, back in the eighties is when we first even put a formal diagnosis to PTSD. And so since that time there's been lots and lots of different helpful strategies. And and if one doesn't work, there are lots of others to try. And and I always feel a little 
bad when I hear people say, well, I went to a therapist, didn't work, so I'm done with that. Not realizing that, you know, a therapist may know one or two skills, may or may not be trained in trauma. And unfortunately, most uh, graduate programs in psychology don't do a very good job uh, preparing therapists for trauma. One that's been really f- helpful are the mindfulness approaches. You know, sometimes you can't reason yourself out of guilt, but if you just, instead of trying to avoid it or numb it or push it away or cover it over with, with uh, alcohol, say, what happens when you just sit with the guilt you feel, either something you did or something you wish you could have done but didn't do? Just sit with that. The mindful approach says, whatever I feel, it's okay. Let me feel it. So you don't judge it. You just hold it in a kind embrace. Think of a child who comes in from playing and they've skinned their knees and they're crying in pain. You don't say, well, think, you know, stop thinking that. Let's think about something else. You just hold them, let them cry until the crying stops and then they go back out to play. And to me, that's kind of what mindfulness with painful memories does is you just sit with it, hold it in, in kind compassion and just soothe it. There is something called self-compassion, which takes that up to a new level, where you start by just being aware of your suffering. Notice where in your body you feel it, because tracking helps to settle arousal and, and painful emotions. And then you might just say the four kinds of statements. This is a moment of suffering, which is true. You're not avoiding, you're not pushing it away, denying it happened. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. In other words, you're not alone. Everybody suffers. Um, and so there's a bond with other humans who are suffering. And then third, may I bring loving kindness to this moment? And fourth, may I give myself the compassion I need? So the way I usually teach this in resilience training is cognitive therapy works for just about everything in terms of improving symptoms but it doesn't improve 100% of the time, all of the symptoms, it doesn't work for everybody. Mindfulness often is a beautiful complement. It works in a very different level, at the body level, at the, the heart level, because mindfulness means heartfulness really in the Eastern cultures. And so it's bringing kindness and love to, to our suffering instead of just trying to think your way out of it and fight against negative thoughts that may be you know, leading to that, that suffering. And again, I'm a big proponent of cognitive therapy. I'm just suggesting that it's not the only skill. It's it's one of many. Well, very good. So a couple of things you pointed out I thought were interesting is that I didn't realize that most therapists really aren't trained to deal with trauma. I would guess most people would expect that, oh, a therapist can do everything, knows everything, and they can help oh. anyone. So that's really interesting. Right, right. And Are there any, why... any, any guiding questions on helping someone find a good therapist versus not? What to ask them? Well, yeah, you ask them, um, you know, this is what I've dealt with, be it childhood trauma or adult trauma. Is this something that you've worked with and what's your approach? Um, I think if someone is a good consumer, you know, typically someone says, I'm in pain, I got to go see a therapist. Well, not all therapists are alike. And so interview them and find out how they treat trauma. And if, if you as the client are educated as a good consumer, you might ask them, do you do EMDR? Do you do, you know, uh, cognitive oriented approaches? Do you do body centered approaches? You know, how do you, how do you approach this? And it's not just the skill level, but you want to get a read on, is this somebody I would feel comfortable working with? 
Um, unfortunately, there are some aids like um, the Sidran Institute, S-I-D-R-A-N. Um, you can email him and say, this is my zip code. Can you send me a list of people who identify as trauma specialists? And then you still have to kind of shop around and interview your, your therapist and see if it's a good fit. But at least you've got a starting point. Okay. I don't know. Is there a class or a type of anxiety or trauma that you can see neither of these two can touch? But, you know, does the does the person have to be prepared mentally somehow in order to be able to accept one or both or the combination of these things? Well, I think you just have to be ready to try something new. You know, a lot of people get used to suffering for sometimes decades and they think nothing's going to work. Sometimes the pain gets great enough for you to go, I got to do something. A lot of soldiers will suffer for 40 years and then release the, the pride and say, I, I can't do this on my own. Same thing with an alcoholic, you know, doing it on my own hasn't worked. You mentioned EMDR before. There's another therapy that I'm very impressed with. It's called Accelerated Resolution Therapy, ART or ART. And it starts, it picks up where EMDR leaves off in that, you know, EMDR is very quick, much faster than taking a year of therapy. And it often works in, you know, several weeks or months um, instead of a year. Accelerated resolution therapy can work in five sessions or less, often two or three, and often with one session. And the, the person who originated this, I think is brilliant, Lainey Rosenzweig. She was EMDR trained, but also theater and art major. And so what she'll do is she'll combine in one hour in a brilliant way, so many healing elements. So for example, she may start with, okay, this trauma happened, but I'm not asking you to relive it or talk about it right now. But can you just notice what symptoms you feel again in your body? That's usually safe and it's grounding. And let's process that with eye movements. Then when that's done, you then bring up the image because most trauma doesn't reside in the verbal left brain, but the image-oriented right brain. Um, let's just bring up that image and process that with eye movements. And then after you do that, and often this is all done in one hour, not always, but often, now pretend you're a director of your play. If you could change that image, if you could re-script the trauma what would that look like? And let's reinforce that with eye movements. And once you've done that, so now you've kind of erased and replaced the traumatic image. Now let's imagine that you're going over a bridge, you're dropping all your old baggage, and you're moving on to a, a normal, happy life. What would that be like on the other side of that bridge? And let's reinforce that with, with eye movements. And so it's really, to me, it's brilliant. Instead of, you know, being a free associative type of approach with the MDR, which we, you know, just watch what comes up and let's process that. It's, it's a bit more directive working at the body and the image level and putting putting the rescript and the new life under the control of the client. So I'm real impressed with that. And uh, people are starting to get trained in that. And uh, I think if I were going to pick one, that would be a, a real strong candidate, one type of uh, uh, therapy. Yeah, excellent. There's a, there's a bunch more I didn't even know about. Lynn, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work and to learn about these, you know, these combined methods of therapy? Should they read your book or what do you recommend? Well, I have written books and, and often people after a, you know, a class or a, a two-day resilience training will say, well, where can I find books, say, on depression? I, I'm depressed. I think that's related to stress. Where's the user-friendly book? And often I said, I don't know. Let me look. Same thing with anxiety and PTSD. So 
I hope my books are useful. Um, the PTSD source book helps people understand what's going on with PTSD and, and dissociation, which is very confusing. But once you understand it, then you don't feel like you're going crazy. PTSD is kind of normal and so are the symptoms. Um, that's the one that helps you be kind of a good consumer. There are also a number of self-directed strategies to lessen the pain. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook is the one that helps people understand early childhood trauma. And, and kind of the rules change with early childhood trauma. It's not, it's treated more with imagery, say, and body-based experiences. And once people realize, you mean I can stop this suffering that I wasn't even aware of what caused it? That's very empowering. So that's a good one. Um, the other two of the books I've written that I, I call my truck books, if I ever get hit by a truck, I'll feel like these were, you know, these are the four that I would have wished I could have written. The, Re- the Resilience Workbook talks about what keeps you, what helps you recover, prevent relapse, and reach optimal health, strengthening the brain and all those things. And then the other one is the Self-Esteem Workbook, which, oh golly, back in the Oh, 30 years ago, I think um, I read a research summary of 100 articles kind of pooled together that found that um, any combination of what I call a big three, anger, depression, anxiety, predict diseases ranging from headache to heart disease. And I thought, well, why can't we teach people coping skills to prevent the big three and do it when they're young adults in the formative years rather than waiting till they you know, they, they break and have to go to therapy. And so I put together a course uh, called stress in the healthy mind, which was basically, here's the principle, here's a skill, let's practice it together, then go home and, and practice it on your own. They'll come back in a few days and see how it went and, and kind of troubleshoot and reinforce success. 60% of that course, in addition to the skills for depression, anxiety, and anger, 60% of the course was self-esteem skills because self-esteem correlates highly with all of the bad stuff. So the self-esteem workbook is, um, has been a really nice, uh, nice addition to the stress and trauma and resilience literature. Been around for quite a while and, and, uh, a lot of great self-esteem skills because typically self-esteem gets smacked with trauma and early childhood uh, adversity and so on. The other thing, Richard, is any of your listeners can feel free to email me. Um, I, I've got a, a resource list of different books and how to find a trauma specialist and, and so forth. And I'd be glad to email that if, if uh, people would like to email me. My email is real simple. It's glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at U-M-D dot E-D-U. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for your you know, decades of work in this area to help people. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun to kind of look back over the last 40 years. Good to talk with you, Richard. Don't forget, before you go, use code genius at viome.com for an additional $20 off your health intelligence test and get started on your health journey with the right foods, supplements, and probiotics and prebiotics for your unique biology. Get a deeper look within with Viome's Health Intelligence Test. Viome, you decoded. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.